Hello everyone, I am Keevan Gwynn, one of the elders here at Grace Point. I want to welcome everyone to our service for Sunday, March 21st. So if you're a guest, we welcome you. If you're a regular attender, we welcome you. I have some exciting news. We are reopening Grace Point. Beginning March 28th, we are reopening Grace Point. And that's really cool. Uh, the first two Sundays at Grace Point, March 28th and April 4th, that would be Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. The services will start at 10.30. That's a start time of 10.30. Until further notice, the nursery will be closed and there will be no children's church. We will be following the state guidelines, so we will be wearing a mask and uh, family units will be six feet apart. This is about protecting everyone. Here is an update about Gary Knox's situation. Gary has a brain cancer called astrocytoma. This is a very serious condition. On Tuesday, March 16th, Gary and Dawn had four appointments with their oncology team. Last I heard, there were supposed to be six weeks of treatments, five days a week. Gary and Dawn covet our prayers. Dawn needs prayer every bit as much as Gary does. So here's a few suggestions. You can pray for strength and stamina during the treatments. Don and Gary are focusing on the steadfast love of God. Like us, they want a miracle. They want Gary to be completely cancer-free, but they also want to conform to the will of God, whatever that may be. Reaching out to them through cards and emails is very encouraging. Mark Bassett is the pastor at Our Redeemer Presbyterian Church here in Ephrata. Last Sunday, he gave a message that spoke directly to Gary and Don, Angela and Lacey, and also everyone here at Grace Point. I look forward to hearing what Mark has to say to us this week. Thank you, Mark, for being so gracious and kind. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are a God of refuge and strength that we can depend upon. I ask that you provide refuge for Gary and Don and their daughters, Angela and Lacey. In the days to come, they need much strength, stamina, courage, and faith. Help us to find joy in you and also comfort, peace that transcends all understanding and rest. They need rest. And last, I pray for Mark Bassett as he brings our message. Thank you for his devotion to you and his generous spirit. Good morning. I would like to uh, welcome you to this morning's service. Thank you for allowing me to speak into the church's life here at Grace Point and also uh, the Knox family as they walk through this um, crisis and as you walk through that. This morning, uh, we will be entering into immersing ourselves in Psalm 77. So if you'd please take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 77, or you can just listen 
as I open with reading, really praying this psalm. So let us pray. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my heart made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work. I will meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. These are the words of our prayer this morning, Father. In the name of Jesus, by your Spirit, give direction to Grace Point. In the midst of the crisis they experience, give grace and mercy and direction and wisdom to Gary, to Dawn, to Angela, to Lacey. We ask for your grace and mercy upon us as we seek to have the wax removed from our ears and allow your word to enter and plant itself deep within us. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> I come to the Psalms for the church this morning, and I want to encourage you in these times of your crisis and your struggle as a congregation for Gary and Dawn and the girls, uh, pray the scriptures. The Psalms are poetry, Eugene Peterson tells us, as distinguished from prose. And the Psalms are the prayers of the Bible. 
Prose is a way of using language, he wrote, to describe or narrate or explain something or some person. But poetry is a way of using language that draws us into participation. Poetry is language used with personal intensity. It is not, as so many suppose, decorative speech. Poets tell us what our eyes blurred with too much gawking and our ears dulled with too much chatter miss around and within us. Poets use words to drag us into the depth of reality itself. They do it not by reporting on how life is, but by pushing and pulling us into the middle of life. Poetry grabs for the visceral. I mean, felt in or as if in the internal organs of the body, the visceral organs, elemental emotions. Far from being cosmetic language, poetry is intense intestinal. The Psalms are the gut of the Bible. I love that expression. Poetry doesn't so much tell us something we never knew, but brings into recognition what is latent, forgotten, overlooked, or suppressed. The Psalms give us ways of expressing those internal, intestinal, gut emotions that we have. John Murr, many of you probably have read him, lived from 1834 to 1914 and is one of the most influential conservationists and nature uh, writers in American history. And he tells of a storm that points to psalm praying, because we're going to talk about this psalm this morning as a prayer for this church and where you're at, and a prayer for where Gary and Don and Angel and Lacey are at. He was in Sierra, December of 1874, and he was exploring the Yuba River and its valley. And he was not planning to sleep under the stars this particular night. He had a friend and had made arrangements with him, that is, until a storm blew in. It wasn't that it kept him from reaching his friends. The storm actually pulled and pushed him to venture to its center. Crazy weather chasers, like tornado chasers, you've probably seen them on TV, they're absolutely nuts, have a great, great grandfather, and that's John Murr. They stor the storm blew in, and Murr dashed into the woods to enjoy the storm. He wrote, nature has always something rare to show us that the danger to life and limb is hardly greater than one would experience crouching beneath a roof. Trees were falling all around him from strong winds and water-saturated roots. He hiked from ridge to ridge. He would pause often just to gaze and to smell and to listen. He was able to tell the difference between the wind tone of a spruce, a fir, or a pine. It was a glorious storm, he said. And when he finally reached the highest ridge, he realized how exuberant it would be to climb one of the trees to obtain a wider outlook and get his ear close to the music of its topmost needles. 
He wanted to glimpse the world birth wet and shining as the Kentucky farmer and former English professor at Kentucky University, Wendell Berry wrote, birth wet and shining. He wanted to be pushed and pulled into the middle of the storm like the Psalms. And so he climbed and he held on for dear life and the tree arched 20 to 30 degrees from the wind with him at the top. And he kept his lofty perch for hours, frequently closing his eyes just to enjoy the music by itself or to feast quietly on the delicious fragrance that was streaming past. Psalm prayers like Psalm 77 this morning, are in entering the middle of the storm where God is. The words pull us into the uncontrollable where we experience all the emotion of living fully in the presence of God. Psalm praying is climbing to the top of a tree on the highest ridge and allowing the wind we can't see blow us where it wills. Psalm Praying helps us glimpse the world birthwet and shining. And Psalm 77 is packed full with honesty and faith. It is one of those psalms, it hides nothing and it holds nothing back. It hides nothing of the present God abandonment while remembering God's past faithfulness. There is nothing like honest praying to set the spirit free. And I want you to know we in the church are terrible at honest praying. There's nothing like honest praying to make those around the prayer squirm. This psalm doesn't beat around the let's speak niceties in the presence of God and his people bush. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has his anger shut up his compassion? Selah. God's silence can throw the most faithful into dark despair. And as this prayer throws daggers back at God, it puts an exclamation point with the word Selah. God has shut up his compassion. Selah. Pause. Think about that. Allow it to become the center of the storm that you're living because you're experiencing it. Verse 1 is interpreted two ways. The NIV would translate verse 1, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God for help. Makes the prayer a reminiscent of an event already experienced. The ESV, which I prayed at the beginning, gives a more literal translation, and it reads, I cry out to God. I cry in the present experiences of my life. I tend to find the present tense reading of the prayer just much more accurate and more helpful. How often we find ourselves in the middle 
of life situations that have no answer or solution. Church, you find yourself there. The answers aren't forthcoming. The solutions can't be seen through the fog. Gary and Dawn are in the middle of life situations that are very confusing with not many answers. Hopes, plans, attempts, but no clear solutions. We don't know how things will turn out. We have to pray and see. We don't go to the mailbox and find a letter from God explaining the outcome of our particular crisis here at Grace Point or in the Knock family. Who knows how this story will read 10 years from now? Or think of a couple that buries a parent unexpectedly. I've experienced this within the past three years. And then that couple give birth a few weeks later to a beautiful, genetically compromised daughter. And she breathes her last before living, just living one day. This couple doesn't pray, I cried out to God for help. No, they are crying out to God and stretching out untiring hands that are most likely fists and not open palms of receptivity. They refuse to be comforted, as the psalm prays. Their situation is a crisis of faith that calls not their belief into question, but the very foundation of the air that they breathe. If God isn't merciful, if God isn't compassionate, if God's love has gone up in smoke, if God's promises are empty, where the hell does that leave them? In hell, right? I mean, do you ever pray like that with that kind of honesty? Those prayers are all over the Psalms. This is my Psalm prayer book. There's a YouTube video where Bono and Eugene Peterson talk about praying the Psalms. Bono talks about how Peterson's writings have so influenced him. Bono is suspicious of Christians. He is one, but he finds that Christians lack realism. And Eugene Peterson, the late Eugene Peterson, agreed. And he said that the Psalms of lament, like the one that I just prayed, and the Psalms of anger, he said they are not smooth, not nice, not pretty, but they're honest. He continued and he said, I think we are trying for honesty, which is very hard in our culture. This is the kind of prayer screamed from ruthless circumstances. The Egyptians made the Israelites' lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly, the text says. And when the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh intensified, things went from bad to worse for God's people. 
Pharaoh said, You shall no longer give these people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. I'm not sure why these times of panic and despair attack at 2.30 a.m. We're sound asleep. Maybe it's a dream. Maybe our inner self is poking our souls with a sharp knife, reminding us life is not good. Chaos reigns. Emptiness broadens in our spirit's basement. Psalm 79 expresses that God seems to hold our eyelids open. We can't close them. And when we do shut our, them, hoping to sleep, flashes of crisis and worry play on the screen of the back of our eyes. Our hearts begin racing like we're a horse in the Kentucky Derby. In his famous poem, the great American poet Wendell Berry, the farmer, the piece of wild things, it opens with, in the middle of the night when I am in despair and I wake at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives might be. He wakes in the middle of the night in despair at the least sound. His soul isn't at rest. I remember sleeping in the hospital the first few nights when Jesse was at Sacred Hearts ICU. My son, he was 16, had just turned 16. He was hit by a John Deere Gator out on a farm and it crushed his liver. It didn't know whether he was going to live or whether he was going to die. He spent a month at the hospital. I wasn't awake in the night from the hardness of the waiting room floor. I wasn't, it wasn't the noise of passing doctors and nurses that stirred me. I snapped in and out of sleep because of worry. Had God given us Jesse 16 years ago through miracle and divine weaving that can't explain, only to rip our hearts out through death? Really? We remembered our family's song in the night, just like Psalm 77 prayed. I remembered my song in the night. And it's the same song Jesse now sings to his two little girls as they fall asleep in his arms. Great is thy faithfulness. I know life doesn't always play fair. Life isn't fair, we frequently say, and we'll tell that to our kids, our grandkids, and a lot of times to ourselves. The psalm knows this and fight God and doubt when it happens. When my dad died, Christian platitudes raised Psalm 77 questions in my head and heart. The problem was my tradition that I grew up in didn't affirm the expression of those emotions. 
Don't do that. Don't say that. Early I learned to swear under my breath so the adult world around me couldn't hear. And yet, I kept going to church. I kept asking the big questions. I kept asking the unspeakable that no one mentioned. God said he was like Jesus, and life realities often told me otherwise. There was this gap. I was in the middle of a head-on collision. I kept hearing mom praying in the watches of the night. She wasn't praying in confidence. She prayed when despair for the world grew in her, and she was awakened in the night at the least sound and fear of what her life and her children's lives may be. If there is anything my mom did right, it is she prayed. Her back was up against the wall. She had no money and she had a meager job. She also had a mortgage and two kids to feed and clothe and a rusted out car with holes in the floorboard where you could see the street on the bottom when you were driving. She paced the floor in the middle of the night, mumbling prayers. I heard her. She often ironed at 3 a.m., struggling with God. My sister dedicated a book that she wrote, Pray the Word. It says at the beginning, in loving memory of my mother, Kay Bassett, who without realizing it, discipled me in prayer in the watches of the night through the crack in her bedroom door. Middle-of-the-night prayers throw us into the crisis of moaning, just thinking about God. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit, grow, my spirit grows faith. Because what is confessed and what is experienced are just miles apart. We've all experienced that. It was Bono who sings the song, Wake Up Dead Man. Jesus, Jesus, help me. I'm alone in this world and a messed up world it is too. Tell me, tell me the story, the only one about eternity and the way it's going to be. Wake up, wake up, dead man. Jesus, I'm waiting here, boss. I know you're looking out for us, but maybe your hands aren't your heaven your father he made the world in seven he's in charge of heaven will you put a word in for me wake up wake up dead man but halfway through our psalm psalm 77 halfway through it changes the first verse nine verses are just the self-absorbed personal pronouns abound the focus is redirected, though, in verse 11. God takes front and center stage in verse 11. What he has done in history and what he has done specifically for his people is affirmed. Verse 10 reads, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. The title of this message is Honest and Yet Appeal. Honest and Yet Appeal. 
I said, I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the Most High. He's been honest about all that's going on inside of him, all the emotions, all the doubts, all the fears, all the accusations against God. And then he appeals. It's a transition. He will remember the Lord's deeds and he will remember the Lord's wonders, verse 11. If Psalm 77 mood in the first half is doubt, the mood in the second is faith expressed in confidence. All the brooding and musing doesn't get us very far. We cannot force God to come out of hiding or to speak from his silence. I mean, one commentator wrote, the process of life and the course of history by no means always reveals signs of God's rule, but frequently conceal it so that man loses confidence in God. Our life experiences can readily cause us to lose confidence in God. A death, an illness, crisis in a church, crisis in a family, a financial crisis, an argument, boredom. It is during such times we come to a decision. It is not that God has been completely silent. It is not that our lives are void of his intervention. We have a question to ask. To what will we appeal? C.S. Lewis lost all hope when his mother died of cancer when he was a little kid. And that caused tremendous doubt in his life. He prayed. He begged that the disease die. But guess what? His mom died instead. And he spiraled for years. And what did it take for C.S. Lewis? It took, it took an atheistic log logic teacher, Kilpatrick, the great knot, and the mind of Tolkien to pull him out and redirect his life. It took Greek mythology to rototill, his imagination readying it for the gospel story. This is the mystery of God's providence in the midst of life's chaos in his life. So what do you appeal to in doubt? The church has a history. The Knock family has a history. We all have histories. We're all tucked into stories that are bigger. What, are, what is your verse 10 determination and personal appeal? I mean, I can list my experiences of life. Professor Azar, he was an arrogant atheist who propelled me into a life of thought. Mr. Wrights, who continually bailed us out financially after my dad died. Keys on the table for a car, washer and dryer showing up, a cow slaughtered, paying tuition at a private school. Mr. Carrico, who welcomed me into his life as a surrogate dad. My daughter's birth, when we didn't know what was going on and we were on our knees praying at the couch and the phone rang that we had a daughter. A phone call in Indiana when we were planning to go to Africa asking us if we would be willing to adopt Jesse who was going to be born in a month back in Seattle. Uncanny specific answers to prayer upon our return from journey, Germany, some of them I shared with you last week. How we received the phone call to pastor at our Redeemer here in Ephrata. The list could go on. 
But when the waters of doubt hit the shore of my life, I'm called upon to remember and to appeal to those things. I mean, it's always good to have the word remember close to our journey of faith in Christ. We need to be a do-this-in-remembrance-of-me people. For me, one of the ways I keep that phrase, do this in remembrance of me, close, is celebrating Holy Communion as often as I can. Verse 11, remembers the deeds of the Lord and remembers his wonders. The word wonder is used of God's special miracles of pulling people to safety. We find here, right now, at that verse, the only use of Yahweh, the most personal name of God, the covenant name, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's used right here in Psalm 77. It is connected to his snatching his people up from the edge of the cliff. He is the God who intervenes, who delivers, who redeems. The book of Ruth gives us that visual picture of the kinsman redeemer. Boaz redeems Ruth. It all points to Jesus. He has this responsibility and privilege to act on Ruth's behalf. He gave her safety and protected her from danger. He has the resources. He has the desire. He has the position to buy Ruth safety. He redeemed her. Of course, the great kinsman redeemer in the Bible is Jesus. He redeems us from the edge of the cliff. It's his privilege. It's within his power. He acts on our behalf and he buys us back. Being our redeemer is central to the nature of God. It's who he is. Jacob and Joseph both are redeemed from Egypt. They are assured of the promised land. They are given the hope of a land flowing with milk and honey. They will not be chained to Egyptian bondage. They will be set free. And when we look at biblical history, we continually return to a smoking mountain where the commands of God are given. And there's a sea that parts so people can walk, safe, walk into safety. These are the things we remember. And these are the things remembered in this psalm. And they help alleviate the nagging doubt, gripping the prayer's heart. And aren't these stories key to our continual walk of faith? It's not just our own stories of God's intervention in our lives. It is listening to the witness of all of Holy Scripture. Do we believe it or not? Do we believe the gospel record of Jesus performing miracles? Do we sit in awe that the preaching that Christ has died and risen and will come again, that preaching has changed history? Will we appeal to this, the right hand of the Most High? It was in 2008 that we had Adam Nader speak at our Weekend in the Word here at our, our Redeemer Church. First time I heard Adam speak was, I think it was 2015. I was in Princeton and I heard him speak at the Karl Barth conference. He, he hit it out of the park. He made half of the scholars there so angry at him 
It was wonderful. And I went to Spokane to have coffee with them. We were going to talk about the weekend and get to know one another a little bit. And he found out that I had done hospice for years. And immediately the conversation switched. He switched the topic. And Adam started talking about his brother's death. He was walking a grief journey that was unexpected. His best friend, the closest family member, was gone. I asked questions and he reflected on the emotions of his loss. He was cautious with his words as he discussed the faith, his faith, in the chaos of what he was experiencing. He was in Psalm 77. He knew the prayed doubt and darkness of verses 1 through 9. And he talked about them. But he was clear about his verse 10. I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I wrote down what he said at this point when I got back to my car. He said to me, Mark, I doubt so many things. I am uncertain. I doubt a great deal. But Jesus is central. That's clear to me. I read these texts and I study the story. This is what I believe and know. It is Christ. He is risen. The psalm ends with God's activity among his people. Through their leaders, you, God, led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The word flock should remind us of Jesus, right? He is the great shepherd, he says over and over in John 10. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. In Luke's gospel, Jesus goes and he searches out the one sheep that's lost and leaves the 99 that are safe. And he searches and searches until he finds it. And when he finds it, he picks up that sheep and he puts it on his shoulder and it says he returns joyfully. So that in the early centuries of the church, it wasn't the crosses that we can go out right behind your church here, go out to the cemetery, you'll see crosses and Bible verses. But those are not the things that were the markings of tombs in the first, second, third, fourth century. Crosses came about because of Constantine. The, the major symbol of those that died was that of the Good Shepherd. Jesus carrying the sheep. One, one archaeological find was a statue of a shepherd, and he was just smiling, and he had the sheep on his shoulders. He was just almost laughing. And that sheep was twice as big as the shepherd himself. You know, we lived in Germany, and we went to Basel 
one day Switzerland for a break with the kids and we had to go through Lurach to get to Basel. And we were on a road with two lanes going one way, two lanes going the other way in a medium and all of a sudden it just came to a stop. And what, what's going on? And I was getting impatient and all of a sudden Carrie goes, look, and she hit me on the arm and looked over to the right and here was the shepherd with about 300 sheep approaching the traffic. And the traffic had stopped and there were sheep dogs barking in the stray sheep and the shepherd led through the valley of traffic, through the median, through traffic, and took 300 sheep out to a pasture on the other side of the, the road. Jesus leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. May I remind us that this world is the valley of the shadow of death. It's, it's not that Gary, because of the diagnosis of brain cancer, is all of a sudden in the valley of the shadow of death. When I ran and got in the car and drove crazily out to the farm, we beat the ambulance out to the farm when my son had his accident. And he couldn't move, he was lying there, and I bent down and I held his hand and I asked some questions. And it hit me, I had been doing hospice, and it hit me in that moment. My son is not in the valley of death now. It's not as if he, got, he wasn't and then he got hit by a John Deere Gator and now he is. It's not that he went from the greatest physical, physically fit body he's ever experienced into one that was on death's door. All that changed was he went from the recognition, he, 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 trans, he didn't know he was in the valley of death, and all of a sudden he recognized that he's always been in the valley of death. Because the only thing we're guaranteed from the time we're born is that we're going to die. We live in this valley, the valley of shadows, and this is, this is the promise that he is with us in the valley, and that's where our confidence is, and that's where we have to appeal. Gary is no more in the valley of death right now than he was the day he was born. And we are called to be honest with how we feel about that and think about that and all the emotions that go along with that. And the scriptures encourage that. And yet in the praying of that halfway through, but to this I'm going to appeal. Because Jesus is the great shepherd and he's leading his flock. And I encourage us at Great Grace Point and I encourage the Knock family to plant a flag and say, we'll be a people that appeal to this, that Christ is the center. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. As heaven's mercy falls like gentle rain, I lift my face and let it wash me clean. In all my times of trouble, 
darkness, pain, I cry to him. I come to him and lean again into the comfort of his grace, and I remember all that he has been to me in all my years of life. I trace once more the story of his steadfast love. He sought me even when I turned my face away from him, descended from above and found me in my hiding place. His might broke up my clouds of darkness, and he strove against the waves of chaos in the night of my affliction, when he rescued me and led me out of darkness into light. May we find our place in this prayer, Psalm 77. May we be honest, and yet, may we appeal to the right hand of the Most High God. We pray this in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. I intended to use Romans 15, 13 from my benediction, but Dave Gossett used that last week. It just shows that us elders are on the same page. The benediction this week is from the seventh chapter of Numbers. This is called a priestly blessing, and I hope this blesses you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give peace. Amen. Go in God's steadfast love.